Welcome to the Sutra Show. This is a podcast about being together, from consciousness to cooperation. We explore the psychology, philosophy, and practice of peaceful coexistence in all its varied permutations. I'm your host, Lorenz Christian Sell, and today my guests are Marilyn Darling and Heidi Sparks Guber, founders of Fourth Quadrant Partners. Marilyn and Heidi bring decades of research working with groups as diverse as school districts and the U.S. Army. I love a story they share about the meaning of truly learning a lesson. A lesson is when you look at the past and notice what worked and what didn't. The learning is when you actually try something new in the world and get a different result. It isn't a lesson learned until you've tried it out and it's made a difference. Today's conversation is all about how to learn lessons that create change in the context of community. Marilyn and Heidi share specific and highly practical approaches to learning together as a system and returning learning to the system. I took pages and pages of notes on this interview and found it full of actionable insights. Please enjoy. Hello, Marilyn and Heidi. It is such a joy to have you on the show today. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Lorenz. It's great to be here. And I'm I'm really excited to talk to you today because um, I have an intuitive sense. I've kind of come to um, a lot of the stuff around what we're going to talk about today, emergent learning specifically. I've come to a lot of it intuitively, and I feel like uh, you guys have been working in this domain for a very long time and, and have a much more almost like rigorous and academic um, relationship to this. So, uh, and, and you might correct me if I'm wrong or maybe you have a different take on that, but I, I thought we'd just start with um, a question to help the audience understand exactly what we're talking about. And that is, what is emergence? <laughs> So emergence is um, a phenomenon that we all live with every day. We are emergent in the sense that we're made up of a a whole body of cells, our body, our minds, everything about us, our immune systems uh, are a bunch of cells, all of which organize into a whole that's greater than the sum of its parts. And that's kind of the key way to think about emergence is it's a whole that's greater than the sum of its parts. Um, An economy is emergent. uh, A society is emergent. It doesn't get that way by somebody designing it from the outside in. It gets that way by all of us just going about our business, trying to achieve our goals, and in the process, creating patterns that are more complex than what any of us can do on our own. So it's a it's a very interesting way of thinking about systems, and in particular, it's different from thinking about a system from the outside in. It's really thinking about it the way we actually live it, which is as individuals inside of a system trying to make a difference. And so there's there's um, a, a, an individual relationship to it and a collective relationship to it. Absolutely, it's a. Um, it is in the collection of our individual behaviors that a system comes forth. And, and I would add that it's, it's on the individual's part, it's the recognition that there is a collective um, 
amplification or impact of all of our different behaviors. So the ability for an individual to perceive that actually opens you up to um, very interesting view of life. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I, I was reading one of your papers earlier, and there was an example there of the way a child learns, you know, it says Dada and the big man in the room pays attention to it. Um, and, and so there was a quote there that I really loved, which was um, from, from John Holland and said, uh, in reference to learning models, and it said, when the model is tacit, the process of discovering and combining the building blocks usually proceeds on an evolutionary timescale. And when the model is overt, the timescale may be orders of magnitude shorter. So what I, I, I got from that was, you know, when, when the child is learning, it's very tacit. But at, at some level, as we evolve into a society, um, there's a, a radical benefit to, to making this overt. Can, can, you, can you speak about that a little bit? Sure. Um, it's, uh, it's fascinating that when we try to work as a group, a, a society, as, a, as an organization, as whatever collective of people are trying to solve problems together, um, we, we don't realize that by the, being very tacit about it, we are slowing ourselves down. And, and the other thing that we, we don't realize is that we think that we all have to come up with one right solution. And by doing that and align around this right solution, by doing that, we're slowing ourselves down. Actually, a child learns incredibly quickly, but that's an individual unit. That, that unit is complete in and of itself as a learner. But when we're trying to work together in a society, we need to be complete in the same that child is complete. And in order to, to, to uh, learn quickly, we need to be explicit. We need to actually say, this is our thinking. Let's test out our thinking. If you have a different idea what your idea is, how does your idea contribute to the goal that we're trying to get to? Maybe we should try both of them out if possible and see what, what we learn from the results. So we're just trying to make, in emergent learning, we're trying to make that process explicit so that we can all learn really quickly. And and. This is why it's so important to understand that it's an iterative process. Um, you can't get that kind of expansion of um, the level of what you're thinking unless you, you're, you're doing this in an iterative way where you're building on recursive thinking. You know, you're together, you're, you're looking again and again at the process. Uh, that, that changes, I think that that changes uh, the level at which you identify what you're seeing, you know, from your own personal single individual understanding to something that gets much larger. And in that process, the results actually begin to accelerate. And one of the ways you know that it's working is that the speed at which a, uh, a team can, can get to new uh, possibilities um, accelerates. And you can actually measure and see that. And, and this is what you're calling emergent learning. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. And I want I want to unpack that a little more as far as like exactly what emerging what emergent learning means is is that um, is emergent learning a form of research? Oh. That, that's a great question. You know, what's so interesting to us is we work a lot with researchers, we work a lot with evaluators, and we work a lot with organizations um, who are operational who are doing work on the ground. 
And there's a relationship between learning and, and research, but it is emergent learning is definitely not research. Emergent learning is about a group of people trying to do something concrete, real, on the ground, make a difference in the world on the ground, and learning, making their thinking visible to each other, and trying things out, as Heidi was describing, and thinking, what else can we learn? What else can we learn? What else can we learn? Such that we see ourselves getting better results on the ground. So research can be a great place to start to say, what do we know so far? There's fantastic research about what we're trying to do here. But once you have the research in hand, then you, in order to actually learn, you have to try it out and see if it works or doesn't work within in the context of actual work. So emergent learning is very concrete. Hmm. Heidi, did you want to add something to that? Uh, no, just earlier, Lorenz, when you when you first opened the, our conversation, you talked about how we had this as sort of an academic rigor about what we do. I would say that the reason that, well, I'll speak for myself, but I think it's true about both of us, that the reason that we have continued to do this uh, since, um, you know, for at least 20 years now in Marilyn's case, is that, um, is that it shows up in real work. It's not about a conceptual understanding. Um, one of the difficulties in, in learning in the field is that everybody has a different idea what that is. And it can mean something as simple as skills exchange or, or something like that. But we use it very specifically that in, in the way we use learning, um, it's actually a practical um, application and then a very real um, evidence-based um, acceleration, as I was saying, of results or of thinking leading to results, time to solution, or quality of, of um, interaction is visibly um, enhanced. So I, both of us are uh, do this because it actually leads to real results. It isn't something that is a conceptual uh, exercise. There's a definition of... Um, a lesson learned that we we studied the US Army for quite a while and it was very 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 interesting um, and they complained about how in the civilian world we use this word lessons learned so easily you know that's a lesson learned and from their perspective they were saying you haven't learned that lesson until you've actually tried it out and it's made a difference so we've taken that to heart that's what we mean by learning the lesson is what you get when you look at the past and say wow, that worked, or wow, that didn't work. It becomes learning when you actually try something out in the work and you get a different result. And, and what I love about that that's particularly pertinent to now is you can, it, you can also see that you can get better results in constantly changing conditions. So your, your ability to, um, to uh, anticipate something that, you know, an aspiration, something you want to have happen, uh, you get better and better, you as a team, and you as an individual get better and better at, at achieving that even when conditions are changing. And that's particularly poignant and pertinent now. Because our conditions have radically changed. Even from the last time we talked to you, Lorenz, the world has changed completely. And, mm -hmm. and interestingly, we've, we've found in the bodies of people that we work with that there's a hunger now for learning because there's a worldwide uh, acknowledgement that we don't know. One of the biggest barriers to learning is to think that you know and that there's some right answer. But when you're in a 
situation like we are now, where everything is up in the air and we really don't know um, what it's going to be like week to week, we have some ideas we can project. But uh, what that opens up is a, a natural um, search for being able to, to learn together. And we mm -hmm. have found that to be really exciting at this time. So help, help me kind of put this into certain specific contexts. Is, is this something that people can do in a classroom? Is this something that, um, you know, a working or collaborating team might do? Um, is this something that would be suitable for, uh, you know, a, a, a 10th grade school room? Um, or is this more something that a company or an organization does? Like, can, can you help me ground it a little bit in terms of, you know, when we're using a word like learning, learning can, you know, can be used in a lot of different contexts. And so I'm curious to, to ground the, this understanding of emergent learning as far as application. I'll start and Heidi will undoubtedly add in. Um, so learning, emergent learning is about, the learning that we do, that we focus on particularly, is around large complex pieces of work that people are trying to do together. So you could apply uh, emergent learning in a lot of different settings, but it's particularly suited to the fact that, that adults are really not that good at learning together, but they're, we're trying to do very complex work. And particularly, we work in the social sector. So we work with a lot of philanthropists and a lot of nonprofits. And um, the, you, so you can use emergent learning with a team. You can use it with um, uh, really with a whole system of people doing work together. One of the things that, that we've done with these tools of emergent learning is make them super, 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 super simple so that they can propagate through a group of people doing work. So a foundation, uh, philanthropy, might have a team of people working on uh, literacy, but they're also working with nonprofits and school systems in places. And those places can use the same tools to do learning. And they can work with, with and Heidi has a great example of this, with you know police chiefs and uh, principals and uh, healthcare systems to kind of ask, well, what else can we learn? What else can we do to help improve literacy in our community? So everybody can be doing it together. Um, so it can be either just a single team or it can be really a whole system of people um, asking questions together. Hi, did you, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I, well, that's when it's at its best is when you, when you have a field of play or a field of work that everyone has a part of. Um, this this uh, community that Marilyn was talking about is uh, is a whole county in Florida, Indian River County. They have a they have an initiative that was started in 2012 called the uh, Moonshot um, and, uh, Moonshot Moment, which is about creating literacy third grade literacy by third grade in their uh, county of about 130,000 people. And we first started with a um, sh you know sharing some of these. These tools that Marilyn talks about that are so simple, they each have a particular um, effect or a, a, uh, an application. Uh, and if you use them right, with the right kinds of people asking the right kinds of questions, what happens is that people start to notice the, their own shift in quality of thinking together. 
and then they start using them themselves. So in this county, we started with a, a with the school system, with the uh, superintendent, the principals, the teachers, the, the reading coaches. We also started a parallel track with all the community leaders, which as, as Marilyn said, included the chief of police, uh, faith-based ministers, the, the real estate community, you know, who was interested in, in, in the increase of uh, literacy because of the impact on um, uh, land value, property values. So everybody had their own reason why they wanted this initiative. But when they started to commit to the, this, that same outcome of a community that could create literacy for third graders, what happened is that they all started to get um, a personal uh, attachment to what the part they were playing. And then the, the system just took off by itself. We didn't go around and train everybody. Those, those uh, tools were simple enough that they could train each other. And mainly what those tools do is reveal thinking, it allows people to, uh, to, to talk about why they're doing what they're doing, what they've learned that has created that, and what to look for, what would show success. When you get a whole county doing that, you have remarkable um, results that come from it. So, um, so that's what the emergent learning is. It, and it, at its best, it's in, as Marilyn says, in complex uh, projects um, with a group of people that are that are have a shared uh, interest in that happening. I've also seen it be used in all of this, all the situations you've mentioned, with a group of people who may or may not be doing work together afterward but are coming together to coalesce what they do know and understand. You know, what do we already know about X, Y, Z? And being able to have a conversation which actually allows them to leave with a much more expanded understanding of what the possibilities might be. That's really cool. So that orders of magnitude that John Holland referred to, you can hear it in the way that Heidi's describing that work. That's what we're looking for. Mm. Mm -hmm. I have so many, so many questions around this. First, you, you, you said something really interesting around getting the whole community to commit to an outcome. Yes. And I'm curious about how, how that was, uh, for lack of a better word, orchestrated and, and communicated in, in order to um, engage the whole community around that. Uh, yes, there are different ways that you can start it. In, in the case of Indian River County, um, and this is documented, you could actually talk to any of the community leaders that have been part of this for 10 years now. Um, we started with the first year, we started with two parallel tracks of creating a, um, a vision of what the question was. And we, we use framing questions in emergent learning. You'll hear a group uh, work together to create a question that matters to everyone. So in this case, it's what, is, what does a community look like that actually is able to have 90% of its uh, kids read by third grade. Now, that is not the national average. In fact, this is a, a, uh, a, a huge problem in the United States is that we do not have a national average of 90%. And in fact, that's pretty unusual. I think only one other community at that time had actually been able to make that happen. So when we asked the question, what would, it, what would a community look like? Or what would it look like if a community could actually make that happen? What that does automatically is have, have people from very different parts of the community begin to look at what the implications would be in their area. So the chief of police was saying, well, what that would mean is a number of the things we're trying to achieve would happen. Uh, truancy would drop, 
you know, crime would drop. Um, the, the real estate people had this epiphany that if that, if they had a community in which that could happen, property values would rise because people would hear about that, that, that the community had this unusual, um, outcome in terms of third grade literacy. And so it wasn't, they didn't walk into the session in the beginning caring particularly about literacy. That would, you know, that's a nice thing to care about. You should care about it. But when each person there started to connect that with the outcomes that they're looking for, you know, um, a big one was equity, you know, was, was social equity. Uh, Indian River County has a very um, diverse population. And when they started considering that this would mean that education would be um, more available to uh, children of, from poverty, you know, it, about two or three years into the process, that became a, a primary concern. Because no matter how much we improved teaching or some of the hypotheses, excuse me, hypotheses we had about how to, how to increase literacy, no matter how much we improved that, if we didn't include the impact on children who had been traumatized by, by being born into and, and living in poverty, uh, we would never reach that 90%. So by that time, three or four years into the process, everybody wanted that 90% and was willing, as, as Marilyn said, to ask the next question, what will it take now? What will it take now? What will it take now? And as a community gets committed to that, um, from having that first vision and they start to realize it's possible and they want it more than not having it Then they start asking that question. What do we need to do now? Once you have a community doing that um, it will ultimately achieve um, the goal So and I want to point out something that Heidi's describing that is different from how people usually think about organizing social large social change projects Indian River organized around a question not a strategy. Yeah. One of the things about emergent learning that we find to be very important is to have strong line of sight, but lots of freedom to experiment so that everybody can have the agency to say, what do I need to do? How can I contribute to this? And if you think about complex adaptive systems and the idea that it's a bunch of individuals going around their business trying to solve problems, that means that everybody has the opportunity to experiment with what they think would contribute to this goal and then learn from each other, from all of the different experiments that are going on. So it's just a very different way of thinking about social change. This is not about aligning strategies and tactics. It's about aligning goals. That's so accurate. And when we actually, when we had uh, the principals interviewed a couple of years into the process, and asked what was the difference that this this approach was making they said that the biggest change and they never would have guessed that this would be their answer was that their ability to hold multiple hypotheses about how to make this literacy happen that in a school system it's much more what's the best idea you know who's got the most power how do you line up around that well what they found is that the encouragement of multiple hypotheses which also you know came from john holland um, that encouragement and ability to hold that is what made the richness and the listening and the, and the curiosity about uh, what was actually working in what situations. So it gave them a language to be able to share that, that and, to, and to pursue it and even to recognize it as it, as it was happening. Hmm. And I get the sense that 
at least in in the earlier stages of it, this is primarily a conversational process? Well, throughout the whole process, it's conversational. Um, yeah. Uh, it's conversation and aspiration and then telling the, the truth about what is actually happening. It's, it's a rapid feedback system in which people know what they're trying to achieve and are able to try out different um, approaches or what we call different hypotheses and then come back and report back to a body about what's happening. But there's also a very deliberate um, and rigorous um, learning process that we use called a before and an after action review, which is um, a way of taking a piece of work and making it explicitly a learning experiment. So what are we trying to accomplish? What will success look like? What is our metric for success? How, what's, what might be challenging about the situation? What have we learned from the past? And so what are we going to do? Then take action and afterwards reflect on it and say, did we achieve what we said we were going to achieve? What contributed to our results? What can we learn from that? What do we want to sustain and what do we want to improve? And when is our next chance to try it out? So it's not just a conversation. It's also active experimentation. Mm -hmm. and, and so that uh, before and after learning, how is... Can you speak a little bit about the, the the mechanics of that? Is that different from situation to situation, or or maybe specifically in the context of, of the of the literacy uh, initiative you guys were working on? Uh, can you just unpack the like what that actually looks like? It's actually really really simple, and it actually doesn't need to look that different from situation to situation. That's one of the the beauties of it is. Um, we say that this should be a 30-minute conversation before you take action and a 30-minute conversation after you take action. And it could be, uh, it could be uh, in organizing the con whole conference. It could be um, preparing for the school year. It, could be, uh, it, it can be used in any situation to think about really deliberately what we're about to do. It's kind of like a huddle in a, in a team sport. To say, what are we? What's our strategy here? And, and is it playing out the way we expect it to? And is there anything we need to notice about what's happening on the field, so that we do better next time? Um, so I don't know, Heidi. Would would you say anything else about how it's used um, in Moonshot Moment? I I, I can't um, emphasize enough what what Marilyn just said. That that the beauty of it is that this is applicable at any level of the work. So what it allows people to do is sit and listen to work that they have no re they they would not have had an, an understanding or a relationship with and they can follow the thinking they can actually follow the lessons from each other so for example uh, at in Indian River County we started having from the very beginning from the time the first visions were created and the first idea of what it would look like um, it became evident that it was possible um, what happened is that we started having learning summits every six months in that community where you know 160 in the beginning then it became 200 people would come back every six months and and share what was happening in their part of the endeavor so everybody had a different relationship with the whole but they would come back and we would feature certain ones that had had breakthroughs or uh or that were particularly stuck but they, it was the same language. They could understand what they were hearing, even though the work wasn't necessarily their work. And what that allowed was a lot more partnership and thinking, a lot more appreciation, 
deep listening. Listening is so important in learning, but it allowed you to listen to things that, to, to stories or to examples that you would not have had a personal relationship with before because you understand the structure of the experiment and what's happening with it. And then it, it, it's, it, it gets very exciting. Uh, we had a few uh, schools, one in particular that went from an F school, you know, in, in Florida, like in many states, they're, they're graded A to F, the schools. We had one F school go to become a B school in one year because of some of the things they had applied. And when they would talk about it, people understood, even though they weren't technically, you know, reading coaches or teachers, they were other members of the, of the community. Um, what happened is they could understand the, the experiment and the win and it was it was it amplified the the energy and the experience of having accomplished something together that then was just contagious went everywhere so i want to emphasize what heidi's talking about regarding language because one of the things that emergent learning gives you is a language for learning and uh you know we've we've done work with geoscientists <laughs> we don't know anything about geoscience but we can have a learning conversation with them because we understand the structure of learning and we can use the language that we that we've developed to help all of us learn together even about things we have no idea what they're talking about okay i love this so let's unpack that a little bit by language um can, can you can you shine some light on what you mean specifically well, Heidi's talked about hypotheses. So we, one, and you asked earlier, is it, a, is it a, yes, it's a conversation between, I ask a question, what will it take for us to do something? And it leads you to have a, a, a thought, and well, if we take this action, then we'd expect that result. That's a hypothesis. So we act hypotheses all over the place in language, in common language. We all actually um, use hypotheses all the time. However, very often we only express half of a hypothesis. So I can listen to a geoscientist and hear that there's half of a hypothesis that's been offered and ask a question that would, it will explicate their thinking. Hmm. Um, so I know that's one answer to the question. You, we also have a tool called an emergent learning table um, that starts with what's called ground truth data and uh, goes to insights and then turns to hypotheses and then to opportunities to try things out. So it sort of slows down your thinking process, but grounds it in experience. So we will hear people say, uh, who've gotten used to using emergent learning, can you ground truth that for me? Hmm. In other words, what is your experience and data that's giving, leading you to that conclusion? So you're, so you're using language to excavate their thinking. Mm -hmm. Yes. Act actually, those four quadrants that, that Marilyn was talking about are actually, uh, we, we had a mentor, Ari DeHus, who used to be head of strategy at Shell. And he, he saw the table and he said that actually is a map of the way the, the human brain work, learns, is that you, you ground things in data, you then have insights, you then move to hypotheses, and then you move to actual places to try those out. And then the next round is you take what you learned and that becomes your new data. That creates a new set of insights mm -hmm. and, and, and so forth, hypotheses and then new. So there's a, what you're basically doing is speeding up that cycle for a team of people. 
and they know they can very um, soon discern whether what you're talking about is an, we, we get them mixed up. We will confuse insights with data. If you ask people to describe what happened, you'll get a mix of both or mm. you'll, or as Marilyn said, you'll get um, a jump to problem solving, which is basically an incomplete hypothesis. It's, oh, well, we should do this, but you never say, well, why, what would that produce? And can we really actually watch whether that's happening or not? So a lot of the problem solving actually loses this power of being able to see the whole hypothesis. If we do this in this situation, this will happen. And, and so it doesn't allow you to differentiate and have different understandings of, of how situational things work. Um, in a group that knows how to do that, who, who has those quadrants clearly understood in their thinking, um, you can have conversations that very quickly get to real solutions. That, that have been tested and can be great, you can take back to why you say they work, you know, and how they work. And when do you need to change them based on what circumstances? But unless you've differentiated like that as a group, it's very hard to actually discern what part to pay attention to. This allows people to pay attention to that which carries the learning through to new action. There's another um, piece of language that we use quite a bit called line of sight which is, and we get, we get facile with listening for when people have lost their line of sight, they've gotten wrapped up in the uh, in implementation and tactics and arguing about things like that, when we will very often be asked people, uh, well, what is that really helping us accomplish? Let's remind ourselves what we're really trying to do here. So very often, that's a piece of work that's important to do um, that emergent learning teaches you to do, to say, wait, 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 we've gotten lost, we're stuck in the weeds, what are we trying to accomplish? And then we can come back and really test out whether or not the, the ideas that we're applying are going to achieve that goal. Hmm. Yeah, I, I find this so fascinating because what you're describing there as far as um, creating a distinction between uh, the underlying problem and and the solutions and how when those are blurry it it, cre it creates a, an ambiguity in that territory and I can speak from that from firsthand experience because I I recently went through a process where somebody was really in a very nice way grilling me on that and it was it was very difficult and 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 so like it was very difficult to actually separate those two and mm -hmm. and once I saw that once I understood that and it really took me a while I was like oh wow yeah that that creates a lot of freedom there to to really separate those two because it's very easy to be like oh let's do this let's do this yes right? and 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 so I'm I'm curious about first I mean I I, I want to say obviously this kind of thing benefits from a facilitator but can a, how does a group can a group learn to do this on their own <laughs> yes 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 that whole idea of emergent learning should be to grow the agency of people to do their own learning. And whenever you uh, require to, uh, everybody to stop and wait for the facilitator to facilitate learning, you have taken their agency away from them. That's right. How? You know what? How we got into, we've been doing um, research um, on the role of emergence in social change. The reason we got there is because we, we began to see after, we've, we've done now seven uh, cohorts, you know, seven years of intensive work for a year with a group. 
and seen the results in their organizations, right? So we have more and more understanding of how this works or that it works. And so, so what happens is when you actually see how quickly people internalize this, because it's not, it's not, um, it's natural to us. We just don't make those distinctions. But once we internalize that, you, groups will learn themselves. They, they'll, they'll learn how to, you know, they learn how to learn. And if, for example, you know, we used um, the uh, Indian River County, that spread like wildfire. The ability to distinguish those parts of learning mm. becomes something that people love to do. People love to learn and they love to discover new solutions. And when you give them some, you know, simple tools like that, they will take it on. We don't, and that idea of creating agency, it's so important in emergence. People, the way, the way social change happens naturally and um, with vitality is when, all, is when all the people in that system become agents of their own change, their own action, and know how to negotiate what they're seeing with others that they're working with. When they know how to do that, they do it. And, and so that process of um, cultivating that ability for a group, is, is, is that a conversational process where you, where you might work with a group and just work with a specific challenge they're dealing with and begin to help them distinguish these quadrants around what they're working with so that with practice, they are able to do this for themselves? Yes, yeah. exactly. Yes. Yeah. In fact, Marilyn, Marilyn and I both, very early on when we were working together, people would come to us and ask us if we would teach them emergent learning. And we'd say, we don't do that. We don't teach emergent learning as a separate process. What we do is, is what is something you really care about? We'll get in there with you and we'll actually start to give you some these minimal, these MinSpec tools. And, and allow you to start to work together and the solution will emerge from the group. And it's just a matter of learning those distinctions. So we don't teach the process separate from the actual work because the work mm -hmm. is what people care about. Well, to that point in particular, we just launched an eighth cohort of where we are technically training people to do emergent learning, but, um, and we launched it last week and the world has changed. So what we did was we asked people to come and with the question, um, what will it take to survive and thrive both in our work and our lives in the current environment? And we used that question, which everybody cares about immediately right now, to teach them how to use emergent learning in the context of answering that question for themselves and for their communities. Okay, can you unpack that a little bit? Give, 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 me, give, me, give me a little more detail around that because it sounds, it sounds really, really fascinating. Well, so that's a framing question. Heidi mentioned framing questions. What will it take to survive and thrive both in our work and in our lives in, the, in our current environment? So we taught the group about powerful framing questions. Use that as an example, which was inherently a powerful question right now to everyone in the room. Then we did an emergent learning table where we asked people to share stories about what's working and not working in their work right now and in their lives right now. Um, in this current environment, we talked about insights about what, what does that tell you about what's, you know, what's, um, what's contributing to this situation that we're in that, that we can learn from. And then let's create hypotheses and let's try them out. 
So we taught, we did that. And then the next day we taught them how to use before action reviews to set an experiment to say, okay, I'm about to, um, uh, one group was about to do a global meeting, which obviously wasn't going to be in person. So what will it take for us to do that meeting in this environment? And what can we learn in the process? Mm. So that's what we did. And then, and then you did an after action review as well? We will. We will. will. (laughs) Next time we talk with them. (laughs) They're out there doing it now. This literally happened last week. So they they all left the call with um, before action reviews of something that mattered to them that was an example of that. That would be Mm -hmm. proof of the pudding. You know, that one of those hypotheses or three of them that the the group had come up with um, could be tested in their particular individual situation. Right. And then now they'll be coming back with stories about that. Hmm. And you know what? Either it will have worked or it won't, but they will be learning in both cases. And they'll be. And since you have this feedback cycle, you'd come back with you don't have to come back with all successes. You can come back with what failed miserably and and actually then re uh, return to that process. Right. With those stories. Um, Yeah. So, so actually, that's a good point that I'd like to really make sure we, we get into this conversation. We talked about doing research on uh, emergence. One of the key things that we discovered in doing this research is there's a very specific way to talk about the kind of learning that needs to happen in these systems, and Heidi was just describing it. It's called returning learning to the system. It's like the bee that goes out and finds nectar and comes back to the hive and does a waggle dance to say, there's nectar over there, there's nectar over there. So it's really literally being able to come back after you've experimented and say, what did you do? What Did it work? What did you learn from it? What did you do? Did it work? What did you learn from it? And bring all of that back together and then go out and do it again. Hmm. Um, there's so many things, to, so many directions to go from here. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I know, I know how you feel. <laughs> uh, so I want to drill into one specific thing around um, when someone has a hypothesis, how do you, or do you help them calibrate the testability of it? Cause I imagine that for some people having a testable hypothesis is, <laughs> is, is more natural than for others. Have you ever seen that that cartoon where there's two men at the at the uh, chalkboard and they're doing complex mathematical formulas in the middle it says and then a miracle happens? <laughs> <laughs> I've seen that in relation to uh, the 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 origin of the universe. <laughs> yeah, well, it it happens all the time in all of our work. Right. <laughs> if we take if we um, if we convene this group of people, then there will be equity in the world. <laughs> Right. So, in fact, that's not testable. Right. Exactly. So that's what I'm asking. How do you help a person yeah. calibrate the testability of their of their hypothesis? How do you is that is that a process of just getting them more, a little more grounded? Boy, this could be a whole conversation, Lawrence, and I'm I'm not sure we'll really do you justice. One thing is to say, if you say, if we take this action, then we expect this result. The then should be something that you could test. Mm-hmm. So if it's then we will have world peace, that's t- tough to test. 
in the short run. So one way to look at it is what's the, what's the then and could you actually see it if it happened? Another uh, piece of it is what I just mentioned is, is there a clear connection between the action and the result? So, um, uh, hypotheses actually, we see them as being nested. So you can start with the world peace and work your way down to the next time you're gonna be meeting with somebody. And, it, and when you're doing that work on the ground, you can really honestly, very easily test out, am I contributing to world peace in a very concrete way based on what my thinking is about what will contribute to world peace. Hmm. And there's a lot of layers there on excavating mm -hmm. the thinking and the many attributes yep. of that and then finding uh, subsets of that that are testable in, in, a, in an actionable way. Right, and and when you when you teach a group of people how to distinguish that for themselves individually and for each other, you have a naturally a naturally cleansing process where people will ask you questions about whether they're from the same level of the set, right? Mm -hmm. But that distinction is so important, um, and to have a personal experience of that, to have it, you know, to have have yourself be able to set a test that that actually. Um, gives you real data on whether what you wanted to do is happening and be able to nest that into larger and larger pictures that um, but what's or sets what's great is when you have a group of people that you're working with like that and and those distinctions can be made as part of the conversation um, it allows again it allows us it it seems to be slowing down to learn to make those distinctions but actually it speeds up the overall process if people are bringing the results back that, that learning summit I mentioned that we used to have every six months for that community, that was what was happening there. People would come back uh, first to, to create a space safe enough to be able to acknowledge that what you went to test didn't happen. You know, mm. how, you know how fundamental that is to real solutions? Is the ability to acknowledge that something did or did not work the way you said it was going to? So that took a couple of years to get in, where that, but that's now so clearly important to the process that you don't skip it anymore. The group doesn't skip it anymore. They, they, it, it doesn't, when you come to that point of learning, it doesn't matter whether it worked or not. Failures are not better than successes. Success are not better than failure. When you're in learning, both of them matter because they equip you for the next round um, of action. And that, that's one of the things that just naturally begins to build is people's curiosity about what actually happened, not their desire to make it look good. And how, so I, I love that you brought up safe space. Yeah. Um, how do you go about architecting that? Because now in that community, you're talking about several hundred people. Um, yeah, I'm curious about that. How, how do you architect the safe space in, in a container that large? Well, one of the ways, and, and Marilyn and I work with different populations in different, um, you know, dif different sectors and fields, but um, one of the ways is to model it yourself. When you first start working with people, to be genuinely curious and to be able to uh, probe when it looks like you haven't heard the story. You know, you haven't actually heard what really happened. And everybody knows the difference, but when you have one or two people that are willing to start probing and actually bringing out what actually happened and then everyone gets rewarded for that, it's very quickly people will follow suit and, and begin to do that. Um, and, and especially when after a couple of rounds, your work actually does change. It actually, you do actually accelerate results. That's actually the magic, sort of the uh, sweet spot 
that we that we look for when we first um, implement or, or start to establish a learning practice in an organization is is to look for those early signs that value was created no matter what the result was. People mm. do know the difference in a quality mm. of result. But if you're not looking for it and acknowledging it and supporting it when it happens, it very quickly goes underground. But if you're doing that as part of the process, people will naturally start to, um, to, to identify those things that really matter, that did work or didn't work, that can lead to smarter, better thinking and, you know, and better results in the future. So One of the things... Yeah. One of the things that's uh, that is sort of ironic what we've run across is people saying, "Well, we can't do learning here because we don't have a, a quality of trust in the organization," <laughs> and it's a catch twenty-two. So we would rather um, experiment with something that's not overly risky, and people can see what difference it makes if you do quality learning around it. And then, you know, branch out to the, some of the bigger, more challenging things. The other thing that happens is that if, if there's really an elephant in the room, if, as Heidi says, if you do this two or three times and that elephant's still there, it starts to get pretty stinky. <laughs> so it starts to become the topic that somebody becomes brave enough to mention it. Also, we will coach in an environment where there's a lot of power dynamics. We will coach the people in the most senior positions or most powerful positions, whatever, however you define that, to be the first person to say, I did something really stupid there. Yeah. You know, or I, this is something that I did that I really could learn from. And it really changed, it materially can change the quality of the conversation. That's right. That's right. Uh, and I have a, a bit of a technical question here. When so when people are sharing their their learnings, like in the context of this two hundred person literacy community, did, is that right? Two hundred people, roughly? Oh no, there's many more. Those are just the numbers that show up at these learning summits. Okay, gotcha. And, you know, and how, networks of people that are doing work. You know. And then how how is that the the learnings that are shared? How is that captured? Is that like a, a Word document, an Excel document, like what? What's the, what's the actual physical like, container of that knowledge? You obviously have been doing work like this because that, that question means you've confronted that. <laughs> I'm just wondering, you know, just oh, an innocent exactly. question. <laughs> it, it, it's so interesting what happened in that group and, and any group. If we actually peeled back the story of any of the groups that we've worked with through time, you'll get stories similar to this. But in that group, um, in the beginning, well, in the beginning, when we first created that vision of what was possible, and even had it down to every every year, what would need to happen for that to exist, you know, in, in eight years or whatever. Um, even then, we would have uh, people who wanted, in that case, I had people that wanted me to implement that, to put it into an action plan. And in the beginning, I, I I said, no, I'm not going to do that because the purpose of a vision is to create a taste for action, not to measure whether or not it's already happening. That's the fastest way to kill it. So in the beginning, you're looking for a level of energy and interest and resilience that allows people to go to go into to do things and have them succeed or fail and keep going. Right. That's the most important thing. So tracking. I know this is going to be hard to accept, but tracking results in the beginning on a large scale isn't necessary if the heartbeat is happening. The smaller teams are doing it. 
if the smaller teams, and there's a principle in emergent learning that I think is so important, that the first best customer for the results you're producing is the team itself, not somebody studying the team or not an, a large picture of whether or not it's working. So if you get a team, we call that the heartbeat. If you get a, a small team that is excited about the progress they're making and you have them tell each other those stories, you really don't need to do any large term tracking. What will happen is that as they grow in proficiency in their own work, they will start to be curious about each other's work. So in the case of Moonshot, there's now a group called, and we're now started in 2012, and we're now in 2020. A couple of years ago, they started getting curious about how they were all producing the results they were in their own parts of the initiative. And they put together a leadership um, group. About 70 people show up every month. This is all self-organized, by the way, that come together and teach each other the, the underpinning or the story about what they're doing that's working. And they started to share techniques and, and then they started tracking results, but only in the interest of actually building capacity to do more and more across the system. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So the hunger for that, that capacity to be built across the system is what led to rigorous tracking of what people were doing. It wasn't, it wasn't just as an, you know, as an evaluation of whether or not we were doing the right thing or not. It was how to build capacity so that more and more people could do it. Now, so, ironically, ironically, <clears throat> though, we also have a huge community of people inside of our emergent learning community who do evaluation for a living. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason they care about emergent learning is because they realize that if they're ever going to have their results paid attention to and become part of the fabric of the organizations that they're evaluating, they need to really attend to learning. When we talked about the difference between a lesson and a lesson learned, the lesson in a sense is the evaluation. The learning is what happens next. So it's actually interesting that, that uh, a number of people in our community do evaluation for a living and find this to be an incredibly valuable um, back end, front end, I'm not sure what you would say. Um, so it's, it's both, um, but it, it, you were asking the question about how do you capture this? And there's, it's sort of a funny thing. We, we're actually, sure, well, you can capture this, but I, I use a term that it it's an artifact which is, uh, it's, a, it's an important piece of what's happening, but if it's, you don't, you don't want to do learning and then wait, we have to stop and create a, create a uh, you know, a disseminate something before we start learning again. Heidi talked about the heartbeat. You really want to focus on getting the heartbeat going and it spews off um, lessons and knowledge that and can be- lots of art, Yeah. Yep. So, so, um, it's probably not answering your question I guess in I'm the way just you wanted to. Framing it in the in the context of some personal experiences I've had, where I've been on a number of Zoom calls where there are uh, a group of people talking about something, and yep. there's a lot of notes being generated. And so at the end of it, there's like a very long Google Doc with a bunch of harvested notes. And <laughs> right. and I'm always and so now I've got like a bunch of these documents in my life, and I'm always like, what 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 do you what do with it? Yeah, what do you do with this? Yeah. There's, there's another interesting thing. We, we, did, uh, we mentioned that we studied the U.S. Army, and they have a, an interesting distinction that, that we like quite a bit between doctrine, which is standards 
for behavior, standards for performance that happen. It takes a long time to validate that this is a standard that we're going to hold ourselves to. And then they have another set of document documentation called tactics, TTP, tactics, techniques, and procedures, which sounds formal. But what it really is, is it's the, it's, if, if I have a unit of soldiers and we're doing our AARs, we're taking notes and we're capturing that. And that's our TTP. So, so there's levels of ownership, but it's really also still about my agency to own the results of what I'm producing, what I'm learning, and to share them with my colleagues, but not to wait for somebody outside to document what we've learned and bring it back to me. Yeah, so Lorenz, that example that you gave of coming off one of those, I mean, how many calls have we all done where we had lists and lists and lists of everybody's good ideas? Well, the question is, where is the location of those being useful? Where really is the location? Is it, is it in the set of lists? Is it in my reading everybody else's what they said on the call? What we've started to do on our calls, because as you can imagine, we do many, many calls like that, we, where we have learning across virtual, uh, just like what we're doing now, you know, where we, where we have a Zoom or something like that. One of the things we, we try to always do is at the end, in some way, circling back around to the personal takeaway that that person is getting from that call. Not the whole schmear, but mm. what is the one thing that is going to make a difference in what you do next week? And when people can locate that and say that, that we even used to try to track that doesn't matter. Tracking that is not as important on the next call. We've tried tracking that, how many people went and did the thing they said. That isn't what's powerful about it. What's powerful is that people can distinguish the thing that matters most to them right now and can go out and try, try something around that. And then they can come back and talk about it if they want. But what's most important is the learning that happens in them. The location of that learning is in what occurs to that individual. We use the benefit of the collective insights. Most people leave those calls with an insight somebody else generated, right? That they wouldn't have if they hadn't been on that call. They would have taken a lot longer to the point you brought up that Holland talked about. It would have taken a lot longer to get to that insight if they had tried to get there by themselves. But they get the benefit of the insight, but the power is when they go out and they actually put it into practice and then can, can talk about what, that ha what happened. And, you know, that's a real surrender. You want to be able to track everything to make sure that it's happening. Well, if you can get that agency triggered in every person, you will have the acceleration and results that we're talking about. And sometimes tracking it kind of kills that. Yeah. That's funny. It's so, it's so real for me because it, it brings back a very, very old experience of mine from ninth grade. My ninth grade history teacher, she said, you're going to forget everything in this class except for one thing. And I'm going to make sure that you remember this. And it was William the Conqueror, 1066. Yeah. <laughs> you know, 25 years later, it's the only yeah. thing I remember from that class, you know, but it's like one thing that you walk away with. It's really powerful. And you know what? You don't just walk away with that one thing. You walk away with a sense experience of everything that happened around that thing. Hmm. So Marilyn mentioned the EL table, the emergent learning table that we do. It's one, of my, it's one of my favorite things we do because when you get to the data quadrant, which is we call quadrant one, it's, the first, it's where you start. You can start anywhere in the table, but we generally start there. 
and you can ask people what is, it can be data, it can be traditional data, or, or we ask the person, what is the defining moment around this question that we're asking? Give us a one or two or three defining moments that address that question or miss that question, but, but that comes up for you and describe it. And the, the, the more specific you get about that experience when you're describing it, and it doesn't take long to do, but if you actually can get into the sense experience of the moment that you learned about William the Conqueror in 1066 and the teacher saying that, your sense impression was the teacher saying that as an invitation to step in, right? You, if you can center yourself in that experience, you, you get the gift of all the wisdom that comes with that multi-sensory association. Hmm. If you can't, if you keep it conceptual, you will not get the juice that's in that experience. So that first quadrant is really important because it's not just about numbers and adding things up. It's actually going to an experiential level of what does that mean? And then insights that you share across a group about patterns that that makes, you know, it makes visible, right? So you just gave a great example that you don't need to track everything, but everybody in the learning experience needs to be, needs to be connected to something that mattered to them. I had a, I had a course once. I'm sorry, Heidi. No. I had a course once where um, it was a banking and financial systems, which I had no interest in. And the professor came in at the beginning of the course with a big stack of syllabi and um, slapped them down on the on the table. And he said one thing. He said, um, "I'm going to make you intelligent readers of the Wall Street Journal." And I didn't need to hear anything else. Basically, what will it take for me to be an intelligent reader of the Wall Street Journal? And I listened for that. The whole course ended up being about that. And it totally made, turned the, the, pro, the, the course around for me from something that I was dreading to something I was curious about. Hmm. Yeah. I, I love this. I, I'm, I'm getting, I feel like this one thing for me is really crystallizing in this moment around um, you know, the one thing that a person is taking away and, and uh, Marilyn, what you just said is that everybody in a learning experience needs to be connected to something that, that matters to them. And yeah. I mean, it, it's when you say it, it seems so obvious, but I, I think that it's, 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 um, it's obvious, but not necessarily often recognized by people on both sides. You know, I don't think learners often recognize that something here really needs to matter to them and, and teachers often don't recognize that as well. It's, yeah. it's really powerful when, when that something that's kind of like implicit is actually made explicit. Yes, exactly. And, and that's what people love about learning emergent learning is the, the first thing that they start talking about is making thinking visible because all those mm. Things that get sort of spent along the way that you don't get to actually conserve. When you start making thinking visible, you you get deeper and deeper understanding of what turns you on, what what actually makes sense to you, and what matters to you. And that's why at the end of the call, to have people locate that thing that really turned them on in the moment on that call, and how are they going to apply it and see if it's so, you know, or what it can make possible. Hmm. Get them in that habit, and and that's more of that heartbeat we talked about. It's one of the unusual things about an emergent learning table is that usually large group processes are designed to come to coalesce to a solution, but an emergent learning table isn't that way. 
it's intended to allow people to bring their experiences to the table around a question and then listen for the piece of it of all of these stories and all the insights that's most relevant to them and take that away and try something so as we said it's about agency it's like if you have if you have 20 people in a conversation in an emergent learning table you may have 20 hypotheses and 20 experiments that happen as a result of that so you've been using this term emergent learning learning table can, can you just um explain exactly what that is uh, okay i will i will do the honors <laughs> it is it it could be a piece of paper it could be something on your computer it could be a a, a whole wall essentially what it is is there's the question at the top of it um, there's a, a horizontal line which is a timeline from the past to the future and there's a vertical line which is today um, so the left on the left hand side is about the past and on the right hand side is about the future and then the horizontal line everything below it is about things that if either actually happened in the past ground truth data stories things that have happened or actual things that are going to happen in the future we call them opportunities and then everything above the line is you're thinking about the past which is insights what contributed to the results the the, the data that we've collected and uh, hypotheses, what will contribute to our success in the future. So that's the structure of an emergent learning table. And by the way, we're fourth quadrant partners. And the reason we are is because we believe that that fourth quadrant, which is about the opportunities, that's where learning turns into results, because that's where you actually take the lessons and turn them into learning that turns into better results that improves our ability to achieve what we aspire to in the world. And what were the four quadrants again? Data, insights? Hypotheses and opportunities. Hypotheses and opportunities. Yeah, and they go around in a circle. They go from action. Quadrant one is action, is data, past. Goes up to insights, which is understanding patterns of the past. Jumping over to quadrant three, which is hypotheses, which is basically insights about the future, if-thens. And then dropping back down into action below the line line which is future opportunities and then in six months or whatever period of time you want that date that final quadrant that fourth quadrant where the experiments are happening becomes your data for the next round hmm. so at that that learning summit i was talking about we would do the whole summit in terms of data insights hypotheses quadrant uh, uh, opportunities and then six months later what had been identified as the opportunities we're now featured as the data. And so there was a cycle that continued to build on itself using many different stories. You know, you could curate the stories. You didn't have to hear the same story each time. You could hear related hypotheses and learn from the stories, right? So that was the, the Boston. The Boston Fed just um, did a conference for something called Working Cities Challenge that was all organized around that kind of structure. Hmm. The emergent learning table. And I, I want to maybe uh, wrap up here with one final question, which it seems that <laughs> so much of this process is driven by <clears throat> by questions, by good quality questions. How how do you help people ask better questions? Mm. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, you know, there's there's so many answers to that. One is uh, that we, we deal in, particularly in the social sector, 
in these big abstract concepts that are fuzzy, vague, you know, everybody understands them differently. So one of the things that we do is we just ask questions about the questions. Well, what does that look like? What does that make possible? Um, how would we know it if we saw it? And why does it matter? So we're literally inquiring about the question until we get to the point where you get a question that people care about, that people can see and feel and touch and have their heart drawn to it. That's one. I don't. That's one way to answer your question. There's. There I, is I love that because it. people are so often looking for an answer they care about, and and that yeah. that kind of becomes closed and really focused right. on the question that people care about. And, and, and also, I mean, one of the things that emerged for me with your work with the Literacy Project is that when you can show how that question is, is meaningful to people in the specific context of their life, whether it's real estate or, you, right. know, you know, that that makes it real for them. Yeah. Well, it also encourages learning over time. So you, you, can, you can answer, if you, had, if you pose a question like a research question that you can answer, well, then you're done. Hmm. If you ask a question that is, what will it take for us as a community to, to ensure that our kids can read at grade level by the end of third grade and become you know, active citizens, that keeps us going. That keeps us curious and engaged. And it, it also communicates that we don't know the answer. Yeah. But we have to learn around it, about it together. So it, it uh, communicates humility and curiosity, which are really kind of the, the characteristics that you want in a group of people who are trying to tackle something really complex. And Marilyn said something in that example that was really key um, in Moonshot, which is about two or three years in. Well, we always knew that the answer wasn't that you get the best scores on the state mandated tests, even though that was the only measure that existed at the time. We knew that wasn't it, but we didn't know what it would be, what real literacy would be. And about three years into the process, the community started asking the question, what is literacy really? You know, okay, so we make all these mandated tests. We achieve all of those or we get a higher score on those. Is that what we meant when we said third grade literacy? And they said no. And they, they redefined literacy. They haven't, uh, they, they redefined it so it included compassion and citizenry. You know, Marilyn just mentioned being a better citizen. That became the definition of uh, uh, literacy. So that informed a whole new level of quality of solutions, right? And we don't mind the answers. We like having the answers as long as they lead to a deeper or more active question. You know, if there really are good answers and you're doing iterative learning, they will take you to the next question. How do, how do we do this with the kids that have been um, traumatized by poverty, you know, from, you know, and haven't had the exposure that others have had? How do we, how do we get that, them as part of the solution too? You know, but that has to keep, that, that question of what, what does it take now? What does it take now is what you need to have alive and well in a community for the community to actually make a difference. Marilyn, Heidi, I have gone so much from this conversation. Thank you for your, your wisdom and your insight. Um, where can people find you online and learn more about your work? Um, well, our website is www.4qpartners.com. And there's all sorts of materials there, lots of um, um, 
publications and a description of our community of people who to do emergent learning. And so I would send people there. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you for your time and to be continued. Maybe we'll schedule a follow-up sometime. Yeah, <laughs> we would love that. Thank you for what you're doing, Lorenz. This is really important. Thank you. Hello, friends. Now I would love to hear from you. This podcast is intended to be a seed for further dialogue and much deeper exploration online. Join us at sutra.co slash show and leave your reflections in the show comments. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it. This podcast is a labor of love. Take a moment to send this to a friend who might enjoy it. I am grateful for your listening and support. So much love.